And I heard reports that Liam tried to get stuck in Florida because he didn't want to see the the blizzard, but uh, your prayers have prevailed and he made it back. So Hebrews 11.6 says that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Last hour, we talked about what it means to say that God supremely is. And scripture speaks in affirmations in saying that God is, but it speaks primarily in negations because our finite minds, our finite language can't capture the, the brilliance, the glory of his being. We turn now to to look at that second part of what Hebrews 11.6 says. He is the rewarder of those who seek him. And summarize that under the claim that God acts. God is supreme and sovereign agent. And I want to talk about some of the attributes that scripture ascribes to God as supreme and sovereign agent. Thomas Aquinas, the great Medieval theologian, as he turns to talk about God's creation and providence and his external works, he begins the entire section of his discussion with the question, is it true that God acts? Can we say that God acts? And and that might seem like a funny question to ask. So, yeah, doesn't scripture say God is creator, God redeemer, God is providential ruler? Why, why, why does the great doctor stumble at this point? Why does he pause at this point? Can we really say that God acts? Well, there's an assumption, and it's a common assumption. I think we all have this implicitly when we think about acting, when we think about agency. And here's what the assumption is. All agents act in view of some end. All agents act in view of some good they perceive, a good they want to acquire, a good they want to share, uh, something like this, right? Um, Why do I walk across the street? Because I want to buy a slice of pizza. I don't know why I'm talking about pizza so much tonight. Um, it, It wasn't planned this is just this is what it is. Uh, but all agents act in view of an end, right? Why do you go to school? Well, I'm going to go stay at this school because I want to get this degree and I want to be able to do this with this degree. And so all agents act in view of an end. This is the assumption that, that causes Thomas Aquinas to pause and say, is it true that God acts? Because here's the thing. When we act, ordinarily... We are acting to acquire something we don't have. A slice of pizza, a terminal degree, a job we want to get by getting a degree or or whatever else it is. And the thing is, when it comes to God, who Paul describes in 1 Timothy as the blessed and only sovereign, blessed there, that's the doctrine of beatitude, that God is the infinite ocean of being who's completely satisfied himself, what could it mean for God to acquire something? He's got everything. So is it true that God acts? Well, of course, Thomas goes on to say, of course he acts 
But if we're talking about God's acts, we've got to think about his acting differently than we think about our acting, right? The way Isaiah says it in Isaiah chapter 55, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Well, let's take a few moments and and turn to this idea that God is supreme and sovereign agent. In talking about God's supreme being, we said while scripture speaks with affirmation and affirms that he is, that he is spirit and so forth, it primarily speaks by way of negation. He is independent. He is infinite with respect to time, infinite with respect to space. He is unchanging. He is not composed of parts. He's simple. Well, we turn to God's supreme and sovereign agency. We'll see, we really have a a variation on this pattern. While scripture does speak by way of negation, denying certain things about God's agency, supremely what I just said, when God acts, he's not acting to acquire anything. In fact, he's acting to give things. He is the, this is what Thomas goes on to say, he is the most liberal giver. He gives never with a view to acquire but only with a view to bless. Well, while scripture does speak negatively when speaking of God's supreme and sovereign agency, it speaks primarily in the affirmation, right? What kind of agent is he? He's a wise agent. He's a good agent and he is a powerful agent. And so we wanna look at how scripture speaks in these ways in order to better understand God's ways which are not our ways and which that's good news because he has devoted his ways to us and our salvation and our happiness in him. I want to begin looking at Romans chapter 11, passage we've mentioned several times, passage that was pointed out to me at the break over here on the wall, the memorial, Dr. Boyce. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 are a really good example of, of, of a passage that praises God's supreme and sovereign agency. We'll see affirmations, we see negations, and we get a better understanding of what it means for him to act. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Paul in these verses praises God's supreme intellect, praises God's supreme will, praises God's supreme power. And all three of these attributes are attributes that we think when we think of rational agency, right? When we think of action in the strict sense, right? Plants don't act, 
right? They don't wake up in the morning and decide, you know, I'd like to grow three centimeters today, right? And I wake up another day and say, I, this would be a good day to, to, to blossom, right? Plants do what they do by nature. It's only creatures with intellect and will that in the strictest sense act, right? I think I'll go get a slice of pizza. I think I won't get a slice of pizza. I think I'll eat a salad instead, right? These are all choices, right? And we have reasons for, for making these choices. We have values that are undergirding our choices and so forth. And God as supreme and a supremely agent is characterized by intellect, will, and power. Well, note first, in praising God's supreme intellect, Paul speaks by way of affirmation. So, what are the terms he uses to describe God's supreme intellect? Wisdom, knowledge, okay? Uh, The language of judgments, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Riches, in a sense, uh, this is a, a positive statement about God's wisdom and knowledge. Uh, what, what, what is the point there? Well, it's, it's, it's back to, to, to the, the thing we began with in the last hour. We're speaking in the superlative degree here. Right? The very nature of riches is there's a lot of it. Right? Uh, you probably also have the idea that this is, it's a lot of something of value. You remember what David says in Psalm 137? How precious are your thoughts. Same idea. So God's intellect, the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, the value of his wisdom and knowledge. But he also speaks by way of negation. His wisdom, his knowledge is not something we could Measure, And this is the, the first exclamation. Oh, the depth. I'm going to tell you a story on Sunday about uh, water skiing in Florida. So I'm not going to tell you right now. But one, one thing that people who like to spend time on boats, and I have been my whole life, you know, when, you, when you're going out on the boat, especially if you want to water ski, if you want to fish, if you want to do all the kinds of things you can do, you need to know how deep the water is. You can get into some real trouble if you don't, right? So you have to have something that can sound the depth. Sends a little sound down, bounces back up, and it tells your little doodad how deep the water is. Okay? When Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, he says, you send that little sonar pulse and it never comes back. His wisdom, his knowledge cannot be measured. His greatness is unsearchable. His wisdom, his knowledge is unsearchable. So he speaks by way of negation, taking away, remember like the sculptor, taking away anything that would, would caricature his wisdom and knowledge. It's removed. It's infinite. Don't think of God's knowledge as having any limit. Okay? 
He speaks by way of negation, describing it not only as infinite, but using an attribute we, we described earlier, independent. If God is independent in his being, then he is independent in his intellect. His intellect is not dependent on anyone. Where do we see that? Well, it's the question in verse 34, which is a question that Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And if you look back at Isaiah 40, the, the purpose of that question is very clear, right? I mentioned this earlier. Who taught the Lord what to do in creating the world? Who, who were his advisors? Who were his counselors? In the ancient world, the greatness of a king was often determined by the greatness of his advisors, the greatness of his counselors. And you see this in David's life, right? How does Solomon get tripped up? He listens to bad advisors, okay? And, and, and much of our success in life is determined by the quality of the counsel we get. What do our parents tell us? What do our teachers tell us? What does our first boss tell us when we get a job, right? Uh, we have to make a major life decision. Should I move here? Should I not move here? Should I marry this person? Should I not marry this person? And, and, and inevitably, what do we always, we want to talk to somebody who's wise. Even if we think we know what we want to do. If we're wise, we don't trust our own judgment enough not to get someone else's perspective, right? But who has been his counselor? And the answer is no one. He is not dependent on counsel. And, 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 and this is, highlights something about God's knowledge that is different from all creaturely knowledge. In creatures, knowledge follows reality. Right? There is a pew. My eye perceives the pew. My brain processes it. Right? It, it pulls experience of seeing pews before. I know what it is. I recognize it immediately. Right? That exists before my knowledge of it exists. But that's not true with God. God does not learn anything that he knows. In fact, the reason that pew exists is because God from all eternity knew that the existence of that pew was one of the infinite array of possibilities that he could bring into reality. And in his wise and sovereign decree, we'll talk about that in a second, decreed that it should exist and, and decreed all of the secondary realities that had to come into play for it to exist. The tree, the person who chopped it down, the person who processed it, the person who brought it here. Okay, But God knows that pew is there, but he doesn't know it the way I know it. <laughs> because no one's ever been his counselor. No one has ever taught him anything. When we think of foreknowledge, sometimes we think of God is looking through time to see something. That's not how God knows what happens before it comes to pass. Isaiah 46.10 Says, the, says this point this way. The Lord has called the, the idols to the courtroom and he said, set forth your case 
Show us that you're a God. And, and here's, here's going to be the proof. Tell us what's going to happen before it comes to pass. Okay, so that's how you can prove that you're a God. And of course, the idols can't do it. But he says of himself, he's the one who declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Do you see what's going on there? How does he declare the end from the beginning? Because he looks through the corridor of time and sees what's going to happen? No. Because what's going to happen is his counsel. And because he brings that counsel to pass. That's a different way of knowing. Now, when it comes to the things that God knows, we we can talk about different things. God knows himself supremely. This is not the time to talk about this wonderful topic, but one of the, the most wonderful aspects of our Trinitarian theology is that there is a knowledge that no one possesses except for the triune God. And we are given part of this by God's grace, but we could never swallow it all because we're finite creatures. This is what Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 11. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. That's what Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No one knows the depths, same metaphor, and there's an allusion to Isaiah 40 in that passage as well. No one knows the depths of God except the Spirit of God. God fully knows himself. God knows all that he is able to do. Nothing shall be impossible for God, and God knows all that he is able to accomplish. And then God knows all that he has decreed to bring about, right? What God is able to do, we'll say in a moment more fully, is a bigger circle than what God has decreed to do, right? In this world, rocks don't ordinarily praise God's name, but that's not because God's not able to make rocks praise his name, And Jesus says this on the way to Jerusalem. So God knows all that he can do, but he also knows what he's decreed to do, what he's promised to do. These are all objects of his infinite, independent riches of wisdom and knowledge. Paul praises God's supreme intellect. Paul praises God's supreme will. How unsearchable are his judgments. These are what we speak in theology of God's decrees. The judgment is a ruling that the divine king issues, right? In this case, about what's going to come to pass in history. And this has been the topic of Romans 9 through 11, God's election of some, God's reprobation of others, the history of Israel, history of the Gentiles, right? And this is what Paul, when he's gotten to the end of it, he's, he's had to just bow before the infinite wisdom of God and the infinite judgments, God's decree for history, right? God knows what he's able to do. His decree is what he's willed to do, what he's decided to do 
what he's decided to bring to pass. And this is one of the things that Paul praises here. He praises it by way of affirmation, his judgments. He praises it by way of negation. How unsearchable are his judgments. Same idea there, right? You send the little pulse. You wait for it to bounce back to tell you how deep it is, but it never comes back. His judgments, his, his will is unsearchable. And, and this is, the, this is a, a, a helpful point to make in light of the point we concluded with the last lecture, right? While God's will is simple, unmixed goodness, Okay? We should not draw from that the conclusion that what goodness is for God can always be understood within our own limited minds. His judgments are always good, nothing but good, no mixed motives, no ill will. But that doesn't mean I always understand those judgments. Right? And this is part of what the call to faith is. We trust that he is the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change, even when we're walking in the dark. God's will is infinite. It's unsearchable judgments. God's will, again, as the case of his intellect, is not only infinite, it's independent. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Okay? Now, to say that God's will is independent is not just to say that he doesn't receive anything from anyone. He's not enriched by anyone. He's the blessed and only sovereign who has all perfection in and of himself, is completely satisfied in himself. It's to say that nothing moves him to do what he does. He acts only out of his own pure goodness. Nothing compels him. There's there's no bribe that makes God a debtor. Right? The only thing that makes God a debtor is God. And we as Presbyterians love to talk about the debts that God takes out for himself. What do we call that? Covenant theology. What is a promise but a commitment to act in a certain way, not to swerve from that course of action, no matter what, right? God binds himself, and he obligates himself to keep his promises, right? But there's nothing that we could ever do that would compel him, that would twist his arm, that, that would, would, would force his hand. And, and here's the thing. If we could, we wouldn't want him to act on the basis of it. Why? It wouldn't be as good as if he acted only out of his infinite, pure, unmixed goodness. Which again, is, is quite important for the Christian life. We can bow, submit to his goodness when we don't understand it. We can worship his goodness when we don't understand it. Job could say, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, as in the case of God's supreme intellect, God's will has various objects, and we don't understand it unless we we understand all those objects. First, God is the object of his own will, not in the sense that he has willed his existence. That is a moronic statement, right? God is eternal. He is self-existent. God could not not exist, could not fail to exist. But nevertheless, God wills his existence in this sense. He affirms himself. He is pleased with himself. This is what the doctrine of beatitude says, right? His will rests in himself because he is the supreme good. And this, again, has such a a rich Trinitarian inflection when we look at the Gospels especially. When Jesus appears to be baptized, there's a sign, right? Heaven is opened. The spirit descends in the form of a dove and there's a voice. And what does the voice say? This is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. The good pleasure of the father and the son. Matthew 11, passage I mentioned a moment ago. Jesus has been misunderstood by John the Baptist. Are you the one to come? Do we look for another? He's been rejected by various Jewish cities. They've seen his signs, but they have not repented of their sins. And yet, Jesus, in calm, sovereign praise, I thank you, Father. Luke 10 says Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. This is the beatitude of God. God wills himself in the sense that he delights in himself and the persons of the Trinity mutually delight in one another by means of the singular, infinite, perfect will of God. God also wills in the sense that he approves and disapproves of what is good and what is evil. Psalm 11. Verse five, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Verse seven gives us the reason. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. So God supremely delights in himself and therefore he loves what is righteous, that which conforms to his own perfection, that which he has decreed and he hates, the psalmist says, that which is contrary to it. And here's the thing, both of these are expressions of God's good will. Now we sometimes think of oh, love and hate, these are polar opposites. The blessed and only sovereign? Is it really okay to describe him as hating something? Yes. He hates certain things because he loves certain things. 
This applies on a human level. Paul in Romans 12 says, let love be genuine, let it be pure, let it be unmixed, let it be the real McCoy. And then how does he spell out what a pure, genuine love does? Cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil. Right? The, 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 the rightness or the wrongness of our affections are, are, are measured by their objects, not just by their mere presence. Warm fuzzies, harsh. I don't know if those warm fuzzies are good. I don't know if the harsh feelings are bad unless I know what the object of those feelings is. God approves what is good. He delights in what is good. He abhors what is evil. And then the object of God's will, as we've seen already, includes what he decrees to come to pass. Psalm 135, so many places we could look, but Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and the seas and all their depths. Paul in Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. The reason one course of events comes into being and another doesn't. There might be many secondary reasons, secondary causes, but ultimately, the ultimate reason is God willed it. Now, there are some hard things there when it comes to the problem of evil, and and we are right to distinguish between God permitting evil and causing good. God is not the author of sin, right? But even God's permission of evil is a willing permission. He, nobody tied his hand behind his back. Nobody tricked him into something he, he didn't see coming. All right. God's intellect is supreme. God's will is supreme. And Paul praises both by way of affirmation, by way of negation. And this leads him to then describe God's power because his action is the expression of his supreme intellect and will. Of him, through him, to him are all things. The scope of his action is universal, all things, and all determinative. He is the one who brings all things to pass. He's the one who brings them to pass by himself, through him by his own power, by his own wisdom, by his own judgments, right? And, and why does he bring them to pass? Him. <laughs> his ultimate reason for doing anything is him. Again, not to acquire anything for himself, not to benefit himself, but to benefit those who are the objects of his mercy, supremely the mercy of knowing him, to him be glory forever. Now, 
In speaking of God's agency, we have to speak of God's will, we have to speak of God's intellect, we have to speak of, of God's power, and there's a lot more you can say of, of, about God's power, but for the sake of time, I want to focus in on really the last thing to talk about and talking about the attributes of God's supreme and sovereign agency. Talking about God as a willing agent. And in the tradition, and it's in the tradition because it's in Scripture, in speaking of God's will, we have to speak of the virtues of His will. What is His will like? What is His goodness like? I had a lovely conversation at the break about divine simplicity and and the requirement of the many different words that we have to use to describe a simple God, not because he's many different things, but because our words are so small and finite that the only way even to begin to do justice to his majestic light is to describe it in terms of the spectrum, right? We don't have one word to describe God that could possibly describe him. We have to have many words. Well, this is true of God's goodness as well. God's goodness is simple. His goodwill is simple. But to, 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 to capture the full array of God's simple will requires a, a number of terms, a number of virtues. And uh, I, I love our Westminster Standards, the Confession of Faith, the Larger and Shorter Catechism, for a number of reasons, but one reason I love it is that when it comes to this part of describing God's will, it more or less just quotes one passage of Scripture, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Let's turn there. Now, it's fascinating about this because Exodus 34 6 and 7, Moses has asked God to show him his glory. You remember that Israel has committed the sin of the golden calf. They have basically broken the second commandment about 10 seconds after receiving it. And the Lord has told Moses that he's going to cut off this people. He's going to destroy them. He's going to, dis, he's going to depeople them. He's going to disown them. And you remember, Moses keeps throwing up various alternatives to try to turn God away from this course of action, and and the Lord keeps rejecting all the alternatives that Moses is throwing at him. And the Jewish commentator, uh, J.P. Sarna, says, when Moses says, show me your glory, this is basically Moses, in kind of ancient New Eastern way, throwing his hands up in the air and saying, I give up. He says, I... I don't know what to ask you for because I don't know you, at least fully. I mean, remember how this whole thing started? What's your name? And he's basically saying, I, I still don't know your name enough to, to pray that you would act in accordance with your name. Show me your glory. That's his way of saying that. Show me your glory. Well, Moses says, if I found favor in your sight, show me your glory. The Lord responds and says, yeah, I'm going to show you my glory, except, you know what, you can't see it. No man can see my face and live. So how does God 
show Moses his glory? Well, he shows him his glory through his ears. How? God preaches his name to Moses. And what's fascinating about this portrayal of God's goodness is that it's a perfect example of this idea of of, of light being simple and singular, but when passed to the prism, multicolored. He says, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord. But then what does he say? They say the Lord is good, 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 good. No. He, he unpacks it in words that helps us appreciate something. The backside, he says, just a trace that we finite creatures can appreciate of his glory. And Moses, after he does this, he says, now I know what to pray for. And he prays it, and the Lord answers the prayer. Kind of makes you think that the Lord knew all along what he was going to do. Well, let's look at these attributes. Look at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Uh, I mean, this is a remarkable thing. The Lord is preaching. And what is he preaching? Himself. He's preaching his own name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations is the implication, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And, and then look what happens. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. He now knows what to pray, and he gets the answer to his prayer. Well, let's spend the remainder of our time tonight looking at these varied aspects, the, the, the various colors of God's simple goodness of his unmixed light. Merciful, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, literally long in the nose. What? Long in the nose. Right? The idea is that someone with big nostrils is is less likely to be angry. This is the the idiom. Okay? I guess if, if your nostrils are small, you... I don't know. Hopefully nothing happened there. (laughs) Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, these two terms are are, are very interesting terms. Uh, Old Testament scholar argued several decades back that the key to understanding steadfast love and faithfulness is to understand that basically what's happening when we talk about these attributes, we're taking characteristics that in their original setting applied in the context of a family. These are bonds of affection. Husband for a wife, wife for a husband, parents for children. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And they're now being transferred out of their native familial context 
into a new context, a covenant context. And this is part of a, a larger theory, and uh, you study covenant theology. This is actually one, a, a very common definition of what a covenant is, is that a covenant is designed to create a kinship bond where one did not exist before. Okay, so the first example of this in Scripture, and this is where uh, scholars get the definition of a covenant this way, of creating a kinship bond where one didn't previously exist, is Genesis 2. It's not good for man to be alone. God brings all the animals before, and clearly they are not his equal partner. So God puts Adam to sleep, takes the rib out of his side, creates woman, Woman appears to Adam, and we've got the first poem in Scripture. At last, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she's taken out of Ish, man. Well, it's interesting about this language of bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is kinship language. Okay? Some of the elders of Israel get on to David at one point because they don't think he's acting right. And they say, hey, we're, we're bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. You shouldn't be treating family that way. Okay? Well, so what's going on with Adam? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Well, this is the first marriage vow in Scripture. I take you Eve to be my lawfully wedded wife, to be my family member. She wasn't his family member. She became his family member, God's gift to Adam, which he owned with an oath. And God ratified, and this becomes the foundation for marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. They shall form a new family unit. Well, what is happening in the covenant between God and his people? He's taken those who were not naturally his kin and by his covenant promises is binding them to himself. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me. You think of what's probably one of the most prominent metaphors in scripture for the covenant relationship between God and his people. Marriage. Come back to that in a moment. The language of forgiving Forgiving iniquity. Now, this is, this is an interesting one, and, and I can really get carried away here. So where's my friend who's going to fall asleep to let me know time is over? All right, I'm keeping an eye on you. Brother promised, made a covenant promise. Going to hold him to it. He let me know time is up by going to sleep. The, the word here is not the normal word for forgiving. It actually is just a word... It says lifting iniquity. Lifting iniquity. Come back to that in a moment. By no means clearing the guilty. Visiting iniquity on the Father. So, so God's goodness includes these wonderful things. We like compassion. We like the steadfast love and the faithfulness. Lifting iniquity is probably good. But not clearing the guilty right? Divine goodness does not mean batting an eye at sin. 
turning the other way. That would not be good. Well, let's, let's, let's unpack this a bit more. How does, how do these verses proclaim the superlative nature of God's grace? First, God's grace, God's goodness, according to these verses, is not merely an unconditional grace, not merely an unconditional goodness, but to use the language of a name probably many of you know, David Pallison, it's a contra-conditional grace. It's a contra-conditional goodness. And here's where the steadfast love and faithfulness and understanding the, the kind of native familial context and how it's translated into the covenantal context, here's where we, we start seeing what's going on here. Right? What has happened at Sinai? Well, Ezekiel, looking back to Sinai, will say that God married Israel at Sinai. Took Israel to be his wife. Wow. That's a, that's a great privilege. And he pledged steadfast love and faithfulness to treat her like she was his wife. And what did she do on their wedding night? She did not return steadfast love and faithfulness. This is is, is the character of, of the breach of the relationship that Israel has caused in worshiping the golden calf. And what does Exodus 34, 6? says that God nevertheless abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounds over what bank? This is the same word that's used to describe the Nile overrunning its banks. It abounds even over the infidelity the covenant unfaithfulness of his sinful people. That's how superlative his goodness is. Psalm 103. Verses eight and following. Listen, listen for the echo of, of, of Exodus 34 here. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as, listen for the superlative, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the superlative nature of God's grace. Ezekiel 16, describing the history of God's covenant with his people under the metaphor of a marriage, goes to to depths that we blush to speak of to describe Israel's whoring and infidelity. The Lord says, normally prostitutes require payment from their suitors, but you paid your suitors. You outdid all the pagan sisters around you in your harlotry. You did not remember me, 
you did not remember all the good things I did for you. And then at the great turning of that chapter, the Lord says, nevertheless, I will remember you. I will remember the promises that I have made. And this is where divine independence is glorious. His steadfast love and faithfulness do not depend on our steadfast love and faithfulness. So great does it abound to us. His goodness abounds to a thousand generations. Right? This is... How many of you in in this room know the name of your great-grandfather or great-grandmother? Okay? It's probably less than half. How about great-great-grandfather or great-great-grandmother? Okay, now we're down to less than probably 10%. Great, great, great. Okay, I knew. There's always one in the classroom. How many of you know your children? Okay. Grandchildren? Lee's got two right here. Okay, great, great grandchildren? Anybody here? No, I'm sorry, great grandchildren? You might know great-grandchildren, right? Great-great-grandchildren? Right. Our horizon, boy, it's so small. Our names are going to be forgotten very quickly. I hope you do know that. <laughs> People for whom your life will have been very important won't know one thing about you. But God's goodness is to a thousand generations of those who love him. He doesn't forget. And the other side of it, the iniquity that he visits to those who are unfaithful to his covenant, listen to the contrast to the third or fourth generation. That contrast is, is, is pregnant. It's supposed to catch our eye. His goodness, his faithfulness, to a thousand generations. What about when someone blows it? What about when they break the covenant and they, they leave the promised land and move to, to Moab as, as you have with Ruth and Naomi? So he visits the iniquity, but there's a limit for third or fourth generation. This is, this is what we call clemency. It's a form of mercy we don't talk about anymore. But it used to be that you would say a just and wise judge shows clemency. There's a limit to the judgment. And God is supremely a just and wise king and judge. And there's a limit to the third, fourth generation. He, again, he's always ready to forgive. Always ready to welcome back. When he's showing mercy, when he's abounding in goodness to a thousand generations, he's being himself. Right? When he judges sinners, he's being himself as well. Okay, but, but see, we sometimes get things backwards. We think what he really would love to do, but something's holding him back from it. Maybe it's his job, right? He really would love to be just destroying us. And, and he reluctantly forgives us because it's his job. That's not God. That's not the God that proclaims his name to Moses. Lamentations 3.33 says, 
When he afflicts, he doesn't afflict from the heart. That's a profound statement. Good news for sinners like you and me. But God's superlative grace is also what we might call an uncompromising grace. And you see this in these verses as well. And we'll conclude with this. He by no means clears the guilty. He visits the iniquity to third and fourth generations. God is righteous. He reveals righteous rules. And he judges righteously. Punishing the wicked. Rewarding the good. This is the universal testimony of scripture. And he does that because he's good. Because he loves what is good, he abhors what is evil. But God's goodness is not only uncompromising in relationship to the ones who will ultimately be heirs of his righteous wrath. But his goodness is also uncompromising in relationship to those who are the objects of his mercy. And this is what we see in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And this is what we see in that odd phrase that I mentioned a moment ago. The ESV says forgiving iniquity, but literally it's lifting iniquity. What does that mean? God lifts iniquity. What is this facet of divine goodness? What is this ray of God's pure and unmixed light that lifts iniquity? Well, It's a really fascinating thing that towards the conclusion of the book of Exodus, you get the proclamation of the divine name. This leads to the story picking back up with the building of the tabernacle, which had been interrupted with the sin of the golden calf. Exodus concludes with the glory of God descending, overfilling the tabernacle beyond what the priests can even sing about. It's so great. What then is the next book that follows in the Pentateuch? Leviticus. Well, the question that Exodus 32, 33, and 34 poses is, can this holy and righteous God dwell in the midst of this sinful people? And what Exodus 34, 6, and 7 says, yes, because he's this good. And an aspect of his goodness, he lifts iniquity. And then what's the next book? Leviticus. What is Leviticus. How God lifts iniquity. It's a sacrificial system. And you get the description of of, of various sacrifices, but you think about the scapegoat. The language that's used there is he bears the sin. The sin is removed from the sinner. The guilt is removed from the sinner, and it's put on something else. Well, This is just a sign. The blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. So what is the sign pointing to? Who is the one who bears? Well, Exodus 34 already told us. The Lord, the Lord lifts iniquity. He takes it off of us and he takes it onto himself. And how does he do it? Well, it's fascinating. John chapter 1 Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. There's an allusion to Exodus 34 like Moses. Abounding in grace and truth, full of grace and truth. This is John's way of describing abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, divine goodness incarnate 
in Jesus. The glory of God's goodness incarnate in Jesus. And when Jesus appears to begin his public ministry, and the forerunner who Isaiah said was going to prepare the way of Yahweh, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who what? Who lifts, bears, carries away the sin of the world. That's what divine goodness is. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2.24. It's perhaps the most powerful expression of our atonement theology in one verse. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Who? God did. But, but God is, is impassable. God does not suffer. God, he bore it in his body. He could suffer and die. But the strength that bore it was divine. And he carried away farther than the east is from the west, higher than the heavens are from the earth to confirm his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. Well, Moses bowed in worship and so should we. Let me pray and then John or someone's gonna come lead us in a hymn. Father, we thank you for your infinite, unfathomable, undeserved Contrary to what we deserve, goodness in Christ. You've loved us with an everlasting love. That you have not compromised your justice in showing mercy. May we relish in this goodness. And by the same goodness, may we offer lives of steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And to one another in you. In Jesus' name, amen.